Next we have Jack Scanlon. Jack is an insect geneti geneticist, so he, and he's also the president of the Young Australian Skeptics. He is editor-in-chief of the forthcoming science magazine, Lateral, and he would defend the coolness of wasps to his death deathbed. You have been warned. So don't worry, I'm not going to talk about wasps today. You're all free from that. Um, although, if there was a classical geneticist that worked on wasps um, that was cool as the person I'm going to talk about, I would be talking about them. So let's just think about that for a second. All right. So the person I'm going to be speaking about today or tonight is, um, let's move this up, is uh, Barbara McClintock. She is or was, she is deceased, unfortunately. Um, she was a classical geneticist who worked on maize, uh, and she's basically one of the greatest geneticists ever. So much so that I'm actually surprised that nobody in the two years that the laboratory has been running uh, has, spo has spoken about her. Nobody has done that. Uh, so I'm here to, to do what's right. I'm going to talk about it. Um, this actually follows on from the last time I was at the laboratory. laboratory. I talked about Thomas Hunt Morgan, who was a, another classical geneticist. He worked on fruit flies, um, which is the area I kind of work on. So that's why I'm talking about geneticists, because I'm biased. Um, he proved, in a way, he, he came up with a theory that uh, genes resided on chromosomes. And as you're about to hear, Barbara McClintock kind of carried on his work and also did some other stuff that was pretty cool as well. So um, the reason that I'm talking about Barbara is that she she's a science hero of mine because I'm a geneticist and all those classical geneticists in history did amazing stuff that I'd never be able to do. Um, and she paved the way for a lot of the stuff that we do today in modern biology. But she's also a really good example of some characteristics of scientists, uh, I don't know, that are interesting. That There's some stereotypical things about her, there's some non-stereotypical things about her, and she's just a very interesting person to talk about as a scientist. So some background knowledge about her. Um, she was born in Connecticut in the USA in 1902. Uh, she, had a, she had quite a non-traditional background in regards that in the early 20th century she was a a woman or a girl at the time, and she she was kind of encouraged by her parents not to do any traditional girly stuff. Um, so she was really into sport and science, which, as we uh, know today, was a good thing because she did so many good things in science. Uh, so she enrolled in Cornell University at the age of 17, um, and blah blah blah. She went through the scientific process. That's all good. Ended up with a doctorate uh, in 1927 at the age of 25. So that's a good. Achievement, you know, PhD by 25, that's good. Um, all the really interesting stuff she did, though, uh, was after that. So uh, in her research group, uh, she was basically the driving force. And she worked on maize or corn. I don't know which one I should refer to it as. I guess everybody knows what maize is. I'm just going to say corn, because it's corn. Um, <laughs> sorry if that's corny. Um, uh, whatever, whatever. Um, <laughs> 
So she did all the classical genetic mapping of corn. So think about what geneticists were actually doing at the time. This is before DNA was actually known as the heritable material. So all of the cool genome sequencing that we have now, even like the PCRing and the cloning of things into bacteria or understanding what the structure of DNA is, that was all sort of many years in the future. Um, so geneticists were people that worked on genes, which people kind of knew were related to these things called chromosomes probably, but they didn't really know what they were. They were like these abstract concepts. So people that were work, working on genetics were doing all of these crazy crosses between organisms with all these mutant phenotypes. And it was actually really, really, really hard work. Um, and Barbara had a penchant for sort of having all of these crazy ideas in her mind that uh, she could then synthesize into ideas and theories that actually explain things. Obviously, that's what a lot of scientists do. But she was so good at that that she actually sort of drove all of the research that her lab was doing um, and kind of did a lot of stuff by herself, which we'll get into. So the reason that she was studying corn is that like fruit flies a little bit earlier in the 20th century, um, they were used as a laboratory model for genetics because they were very easy to grow, I guess. Corn's easy to grow. And you get a lot of offspring so each kernel, of, uh, each ear of corn has heaps of kernels. You've all eaten corn before. And each of those is its own organism. It's a fertilized sort of thing that has its own unique uh, genome. So you can actually type a lot of different offspring at once just by like picking up the kernel and just looking at what's on there. Um, so she did that in a lab. She did it with a lot of other people. And as I said before, she mapped the chromosomes of maize, which is pretty good, or corn. Um, her first really big thing that she did was in 1931, she actually proved that genes were ordered linearly on chromosomes. So that kind of sounds like a basic thing that everybody knows now, but it was kind of a big deal. So Thomas Hunt Morgan, who I mentioned before, uh, won a Nobel Prize in 1933 for coming up with the idea that this was the case, but until 1931, with Barbara McClintock's work and some parallel work uh, in fruit flies at the time. This wasn't actually empirically proven. It was just an idea that people liked because it explained everything that they saw in genetics. Um, but she did this amazing uh, experiment, which I would love to be able to explain to you. And I read lots of different papers explaining it, and I don't have the time to go into it. But it's just the most elegant uh, genetics explanation uh, and experiment that you'll ever see, especially coming from the 30s when they really didn't know anything. So she did this amazing thing. She basically paved the way for Thomas Hunt Morgan to get his Nobel Prize two years later. Um, and yeah, she did basically one of the greatest experiments in biology of all time. Um, but that's not all she did. That's kind of her first little thing um, that she will be remembered for forever in biology. Um, so she, it's probably a good point at which to bring up her temperament as a researcher because it's part of the reason that I wanted to talk about her. So she was kind of, she's been described in a lot of biographies of her that she's kind of like a true introvert. Um, she was kind of fiercely to herself. She did a lot of stuff with corn and she didn't really let any, she, no, as, as in she, she, <laughs> That is disgusting. Um, and I didn't say it. I'm, I wasn't even thinking that. Jesus Christ. 
she uh, she basically tended all the corn herself. Like she wouldn't let people mess up her experiments. The stuff she was doing was quite complicated. She had to breed a lot of different plants and then look at it all. She had to observe all this stuff. Uh, it, she didn't trust anybody to do it for her, basically. Um, so she was locked away in the lab or the field, I guess. Can you be locked in a field, I guess, if there's a gate? Um, and yeah, she was doing all this stuff. Uh, she also had the sort of mind that would come up with answers to questions. So, uh, okay, so there's a couple of examples of this of people saying that uh, if you were talking with her about something in genetics, she would answer questions that she thought you should be asking, not the ones that you were actually asking her. Um, so she was always thinking ahead, sort of coming up all this, with all this stuff by herself. It was great, I guess, in a way. We'll get back to that. Um, so she was coming up with all these ideas. She was kind of by herself, not really talking to a lot of people in that scientific collaborative way. And she basically, in the 40s, discovered things called transposable elements. Now, kind of getting to the point there, she won a Nobel Prize for this in the 80s. And we'll get back to why it took so long. But this is basically the main reason that people remember her today. She discovered what are called transposable elements or mobile elements, or a more colloquial term for that is jumping genes. So back to what I was saying before about genetics in the 40s and 30s and 40s not really having any molecular basis, she basically realized that there were genes in the corn uh, genome that were sort of jumping around and doing all this stuff, like breaking certain genes, then jumping away, and then fixing the gene again, and there was all these weird things that were happening. And she was basically the only person that sort of realized this was occurring, and she couldn't really convince anybody that it was happening because she was so wrapped up in her own head. She'd done all these crazy crosses that nobody else would be able to do. Uh, she couldn't explain it to anybody because she didn't. She she knew what she was talking about, but she either she didn't value the communication enough, or she was just so far ahead of everybody that nobody really could grasp what she was saying that apparently she would give seminars on all the stuff that she's done and then there would be like no applause afterwards because everyone's like, what the hell did you just say? You like destroyed everyone's brain. So she came up with these crazy ideas um, with jumping genes and stuff. And this is before DNA was molecularly analyzed. Um, and yeah, she sort of progressed from there. It's interesting to, to look back on her legacy as a person who looked at transposable elements because what she thought she was looking at it at the time was genes jumping around and controlling things in development. So a classic uh, example of this in corn that she found was that there was a gene that would jump out, uh, jump into a gene that controlled uh, the color of the kernels of corn, and then it would jump out again. And depending on when it jumped out and jumped in during development, you would get speckled color rather than just either no color or full color. Uh, so she thought these genes had some role in regulating how genes worked in the genome and it controlled development and regulated things. And that was her big idea. She said, oh, I found how genes are regulated and how all organisms kind of come to be as they are. Unfortunately, over time, that idea didn't really bear any fruit and her main idea was basically proven wrong as we knew more and more about genetics. So she, she went through 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, she won all these awards, um, her colleagues loved her, she was 
sort of revered as this uh, genetics god in a sense. But she never really achieved the heights of her colleagues in the sense that she got all these lofty positions. She just had a lab where she would work with corn kind of by herself. She had all this sort of money and grant money and stuff coming in, but she would do it all by herself. She wasn't some lofty professor. She was just doing her stuff. Um, and then in the 80s, her colleagues sort of thought, well, she's quite a good geneticist. She should probably win the Nobel Prize, I guess. So they started submitting her name because um, I guess that's how the Nobel Prize works. I guess you just, you, there's a short list of people and people get nominated and then you try and work out uh, who should deserve to win. And by this time, transposable elements had been rediscovered in bacteria and viruses uh, in the 70s and 80s because we'd finally decoded all of the, well, some of the molecular basis of that. And people started to realize they were ubiquitous. They're in bacteria, they're in viruses, they're in plants, they're in animals, they're in fungi, they're in all of the tiny little protistin microbes. And this geneticist working in corn in the 40s had discovered it 30 or 40 years earlier without any of those fancy methods. So all of her colleagues around that time, she was in her 70s at the time, said she should probably win a Nobel Prize. And she eventually did in 1983. Unfortunately, uh, Barbara was not particular. She was, she, I, I guess she was happy she won a Nobel Prize. Who wouldn't be happy that you've won a Nobel Prize? That would be crazy. But she was a bit disappointed because the thing that she won for was kind of what she thought was an, it was kind of like an offshoot of the original thing that she wanted to prove, which was the regulation, the gene regulation thing, which never really panned out. So. Yeah, she got all this recognition, um, but it was kind of for like this extra little offshoot rather than the thing that she'd been dedicating her life to, which was a bit disappointing to her. However, she basically had the ideal scientific life in that she always had a lab. She got to retire on her own terms. Even once she formally retired in the late 60s, she still worked in the lab, um, and she basically had the perfect scientist life in a sense. Um, so I thought it'd be a good idea to actually talk about why transposable elements are important because she did all this great genetics research, but her legacy in terms of what people built upon is actually quite important as well. Um, so 65% approximately of the human genome is composed of these transposable elements. So she had no idea of knowing that. She was only working with corn. But it turns out the transposable elements play a major role uh, in evolutionary processes. So there's things like uh, insecticide resistance in insects, there's antibiotic resistance in bacteria, and that's all modulated or partly modulated by transposable elements, um, either promoting those or knocking them out or transferring genes between species and stuff. So her work actually had a lot more implications than she ever could have imagined. Um, yeah, so looking back at her legacy, there's been a lot of controversy of why she didn't win the Nobel Prize when she did, like she should have won it earlier. Um, some people have chalked that up to the fact that she was a woman in science, which may have played a role. Um, but I think, and a lot of, uh, it's not, I'm not really the expert, but a lot of biographers of her have basically decided, come to the conclusion it was because of her communicative skills, she couldn't actually explain the, the, the crux of her research to people. They couldn't understand it which sort of comes to why she's a scientific hero of mine. I don't think heroes should be these perfect ideal people 
that we sort of put up on a pedestal and say, if I could only be that person, I would be, I'd had the ideal life. What we should have is people that we recognize that obviously got some strengths and we want to emulate them in that respect. But they also have flaws that sort of help us understand how we can improve as people. So obviously the laboratory is a science communication night uh, in a sense. And I hope everybody here recognizes that science communication is very important. Barbara McClintock, yes. Uh, Barbara McClintock is a kind of a perfect example of why science communication is important because she was she was so influential and did all this amazing stuff but just imagine what could have been achieved if she could actually take her results and even communicate it just to her peers let alone the general public so the fact that she got so much done without doing that is amazing but let that sink in uh, it would have been a lot better if science communication was improved there so, uh, just as to wrap up, she passed away uh, at the age of 90 in 1992, which is the year I was born. I'm not claiming to be a resurrected version of her, don't worry. <laughs> don't worry. Um, it was the wrong month. I, I was born in March. She, was, she passed away in September. Unless there was time-travelling souls or something. Um, but she... Yeah, she had an amazing life. She was satisfied with her life till the end. She sort of she lived in a cottage at the end of her days near where her lab was. Um, and there's a quote by her that nicely uh, sums things up. I just have been so interested in what I was doing, and it's been such a pleasure, such a deep pleasure, that I never thought of stopping. I've had a very, very satisfying and interesting life. That's a good thing to think about your own life, isn't it? I think we can all emulate that as well, I guess. All right, thank you, you've been great. <laughs>